Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Christian tradition over the years has devised many legends about the famous wise men of Matthew chapter 2. I think that most Americans today probably believe that there were three specifically wise men, that these wise men were kings from three different nations in the Orient who came to worship the Lord Jesus along with the shepherds in the stable. Catholic tradition has even named these three wise men as Sapphar, Melchior, and Balthazar. But the fact is that we don't know the names of these men. We don't actually know how many there were. We know that there was a plurality, but we don't know that there were three specifically. We don't know the countries that they came from, perhaps Babylon, perhaps Persia, perhaps Arabia. We do know that some aspects of our tradition aren't quite correct. For example, despite some of the manger scenes that we love to display, and we have them in our home at Christmas time. The Magi didn't come to worship the Lord Jesus along with the shepherds, but months, perhaps even years later, 
Because Matthew makes it clear that Joseph and Mary, the Holy Family, was in a house, not a stable, when the Magi came for their visit. And based on the reckoning of the time of the birth of the Christ by Herod the Great, it may have been one to even two years after the visit of the shepherds that the Magi appeared in Jerusalem and then Bethlehem. Today, I want us to wise up about the wise men. I want us to dispel some of the myth and legend that surrounds our Christmas story and probe deeply into the actual events of the Magi's visit. Because when we do, we will discover that there are treasures to behold in this account that display the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that revealed to us his compassion and mercy to even the worst of sinners, and that show us that he is worthy of all of our worship and all of our sacrifice. The first lesson that we learn from the visit of the Magi is that Jesus came to save all the peoples of the world. Of all the fascinating events that surrounded the visit of the Magi, none was more spectacular than the star of Bethlehem, as we call it, that appeared in the heavens to summon the Magi from the east, first to Jerusalem, and then guide them to the site of the Holy Family in Bethlehem. What was this star? And how did it lead the Magi to the Lord Jesus? Well, scientists and Bible scholars have made very many attempts to specifically identify the star of Bethlehem. And it's a little more difficult than it might seem because the word that is translated as star in the Greek text of Matthew's gospel, austere, has a wide range of meaning. It doesn't necessarily refer to a star proper. Sometimes it refers to planets, sometimes to planetary conjunctions, sometimes to meteors and to comets. So just about any astronomical phenomenon could be described using Matthew's Greek term. The flexibility of the Greek term has given rise to quite a few theories over the last two millennia. The early church father Origen suggested that the star of Bethlehem was actually a comet or meteor. And recently, some astronomers have suggested that it was Halley's Comet that orbits every 77 years. And I'm not convinced of that. Uh, for one thing, Halley's Comet would have passed around the time of Jesus' birth about 12 to 11 BC. Christ is actually born around 5 BC, and so Halley's Comet would appear almost half a decade too early to really signal Messiah's birth. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 uh, Christ could not have been born in 5 BC. He was obviously born in 0 AD or something like that. Uh, but the reality is that our Christian calendar was not fixed until the Middle Ages by a monk named Dionysius Exodus. And when he fixed the calendar, he made a slight miscalculation 
when he tried to figure out the time of Christ's birth and fixed the calendar about five years too late. So Christ was actually born 4 to 6 BC, around in that range. We can be certain of that based on the fact that Herod the Great is still alive. And he was not in 0 AD, if you want to refer it that way. Haley's comment's just too early. Others have suggested that maybe the star of Bethlehem was a supernova, which is a faint distant star that explodes and suddenly emits an intense and brilliant light. But this doesn't satisfy the details of the text either, because the Gospel of Matthew doesn't just say that this austere appeared, it, it said that it actually went before the Magi so that it could lead them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And what is more, it even hovered over the single house where the Holy Family was residing. Supernova doesn't match that description. Others have suggested that the star of Bethlehem is a conjunction of planets within a constellation. This one's particularly interesting. There was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation Pisces just a couple of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And the reason that's interesting is that in Jewish astrology, Saturn is the star of Israel, Jupiter is the star of righteousness, and Pisces is the constellation of the king or the Messiah. So when all of these events line up, it would have signaled to Jewish astrologists that Israel's righteous Messiah had come. But while that is very fascinating, once again, it doesn't quite measure up with the details of Matthew's gospel. Because he doesn't just say this sign appeared in the heavens. This is a heavenly light that was able to descend close to the earth so that it could guide the Magi from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and again hover over the exact home where the Holy Family was present. So, what's the solution? Well, I would argue that the star of Bethlehem is not an ordinary astronomical phenomenon. When we look up into the sky on Christmas Eve now, we probably don't see this particular light because this was a supernatural event created by the almighty God for this important era of history to mark the birth of the Messiah and guide the Magi to the place of Jesus' birth. And I'm really convinced that we actually are misguided in our yearning to know which precise heavenly body this austere of Matthew 2 was, and in the process we missed the real point. The question we need to be asking is why did God use an event like this to signal the birth of Messiah? What is the theological significance of the star of Bethlehem? 
And I believe the answer to that is found in Psalm 19. There David wrote about natural revelation, how God reveals himself to us through nature itself. And David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What David is telling us is that God wrote his glory in the heavens because that is a form of universal revelation that everyone can see and understand. Even without the benefit of the Holy Scriptures, everyone should know that there is an almighty, wise creator God. It's the natural revelation that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. He talks about how the Creator can be known to a certain extent through creation itself. And it testifies to God's eternality, His power, His authority, His wisdom. The Lord Jesus will later teach in Matthew 5, natural revelation attests to God's love even for His enemies. And it is no accident that when the Lord Jesus is born, God reveals that event in the heavens. Now, there were plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah's birth, and one of those prophecies will be quoted in Matthew 2, verse 6. The prophet Micah had said that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem specifically. But don't forget, the Old Testament scriptures were the treasured possession of the nation of Israel. Israel's Hebrew scriptures were largely unknown in the Gentile world. But God had revealed himself even to Gentiles by manifesting his glory in creation and particularly revealing his glory in the heavens. And he does the very same thing at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ had been born merely for the benefit of the nation of Israel, it would have been enough for that birth to be foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures by the Old Testament prophets. But Jesus was not born just for the benefit of the blood descendants of Father Abraham. He was born to bring salvation to people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so his birth is announced not just in the pages of the sacred scrolls, but in the heavens itself. Because as David wrote, the message in the heavens goes out to all the earth their words to the ends of the world. It doesn't matter what language a person speaks. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what culture they come from. 
the message revealed in the heavens can be seen and understood everywhere and by all. But by announcing the birth of the Messiah in the heavens, God is making it clear that Jesus is born for the benefit of all humanity, people of every language, culture, nationality, ethnicity, and breakdown. Let me describe it this way. Let's say that a fellow named Rick is about to have his 50th birthday. And his wife wants to do something special for him, so she sends out engraved invitations to a few people, and at the bottom of the invitation, there is that well-known RSVP. Let us know if you're coming, because we're going to be preparing for specifically that number who have been invited and replied that they will attend. With that kind of invitation, you know that only a select group of people are to attend the party, right? You can't just show up if you didn't receive an invitation. But on the other hand, if Rick's wife puts a neon sign in the front yard, you know, one of those flashing signs with the arrow that points, and it has the little slogan at the bottom, ain't it nifty, Rick is 50, party at eight, y'all come. The fact that that invitation is in those flashing lights and on the side of the street tells you you don't have to receive a formal invitation because everybody is invited. And what I'm saying is that if the birth of the Lord Jesus had only been announced in the pages of Holy Scripture, that would have been like the engraved invitation requiring the RSVP intended for only a select few. But by writing the announcement of Messiah's birth in the heavens, God is making it clear that Jesus has come to be the Savior of all who will repent and believe. Even people like us. Even people like us who are not beneficiaries of the Old Testament covenant. Even people like us who do not have Abraham's blood in our veins, but have Abraham's faith in our hearts. God came to save people like us as well. Even we who were strangers to the covenant promises before. And not only does the visit of the Magi show that Jesus came to be the Savior of all the peoples of the earth, it also shows that Jesus can forgive and change the very worst of sinners. Now, in our ESV translation, these men are referred to as wise men from the east. And we tend to see these wise men as highly intelligent scholars who had studied all of the ancient scientific works, who probably even were familiar with the ancient biblical scrolls and, and that kind of thing. And we almost portray them as people who are so important that they somehow deserved 
to be summoned to celebrate the birth of our Lord, when in fact, the very opposite is true. The word that is translated in many of our English versions as wise men doesn't actually mean wise men. Uh, David is referred to in the book of, uh, Daniel, excuse me, is referred to as a wise man in the book of Daniel. But in the Greek text, it's a completely different word than the one that we find here. It's the word that our term sophisticated comes from. Wise one. But the Greek term that Matthew uses to describe the magi is the Greek word magos. If we were to write it in English, it would be M-A-G-O-S. Our word magi is a derivative of it. I think of that word magi for just a minute, M-A-G-I. Is that a component of some other English words we know? Words like magic, words like magician, and that is no accident. Because this Greek word that Matthew uses to describe these men is actually referring to sorcerer magicians. The Magi in the ancient world, and particularly from the East, were pagan priests that mixed together the false religion of Zoroastrianism with astrology, the interpretation of dreams and visions, and black magic. And although that's the way the word Magi is used, Exclusively in extra-biblical literature, it's also the way the word magi is used in the Bible. When the Hebrew book of Daniel was translated into Greek and what we call the Septuagint, the translators used this word magos repeatedly, particularly in Daniel chapter 2. Verses 2, verses 4, verses 5, verses 10. Go back and read those verses and you'll see how the book of Daniel describes magi. They belong to a group called magicians, sorcerers, enchanters, and astrologers. You might say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought astrology was a condemned practice in Bible. You are absolutely right. There are a number of passages that condemn astrology in fierce terms The prophet Isaiah warned of the coming doom of astrologers when he wrote, let the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from the wrath that will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Why does Isaiah condemn astrology in such stark language? Uh, Because it's idolatry of the worst sort. Astrology uh, uh, treats the stars and constellations as if they were divine powers that have the ability to control the fate of humanity here in the world. 2 Kings 7, 16. 1716 associates astrology with sorcery and black magic in the very same way that the book 
of Daniel does. These magi were idolaters. They were sorcerers. They were astrologers. They were the epitome of wickedness in the estimation of first century Jews. The fact is, the New Testament uses this word magos a few times as well. Two occurrences, both in Acts 13, verses 6 and 8, where the word describes Elymas the sorcerer. And what did the Apostle Paul think of that particular magos? Well, he rebuked Elymas the sorcerer with these words, you are a child of the devil, you are an enemy of everything that is right, you are full of wickedness and hypocrisy. And here's the point that I want you to understand clearly. Everything that Daniel 2 and Acts 13 describe about ancient magi is true of those who appear in Matthew chapter 2. Why, of all the people on the earth, would God summon men like this to the birth of his Son and our Savior? I think there are two important reasons. Number one, the appearance of these sorcerer magicians, these practitioners of the black arts at the birth of the Lord Jesus is a demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ to conquer the kingdom of Satan to dispel the darkness and superstition that the devil imposes upon the minds of men. We're going to see again and again in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' power and authority over demonic spirits. He will encounter people like the Gadarene demoniac filled with a legion of demons. And his simple command might be aptly translated, shut up, get out, and the demons flee. But what we don't realize is that we do not have to wait to the adult ministry of the Lord Jesus to see him exercising his authority over the demonic world. Even here at his birth, Jesus is summoning men in bondage to Satan to him so that they can be set free. Even here at his birth, Jesus as sorcerers, warlocks, wizards, magicians, astrologers bow down and worship him as God and king. The very demons of hell will worship Jesus in his adult ministry. They will confess him even as the very son of God. But these men who have been manipulated and controlled by the devil make that very same confession in Matthew chapter 2 when they worship the infant Christ. Even at his birth, the kingdom of light is invading the kingdom of darkness. Even in Jesus' birth, the authority of God's Son is driving demons to their knees in submission. 
when I was in seminary, I was the pastor of a, a small rural church in Northeast Mississippi. I supplemented my income by working at a secular job that I actually loved because it opened all kinds of doors for Christian witness. I found out one day that my boss's son had died, was ruled a suicide by the police. Uh, it was much more complicated than that. But I decided to go to my boss's house to try to offer some biblical comfort to him and his family and, frankly, uh, hoping to share the good news about Jesus Christ. Boss wasn't there, but his son, Andy, who was in his late teens, was. He invited me in. We had a, a great conversation. I presented to him the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and I invited him to confess faith in Jesus as his God, Savior, and King, to receive forgiveness of his sin and have his life transformed. And he said, oh, I wish I could. I said, well, why can't you? He said, I have a tattoo. And I responded just like you did. I, I kind of chuckled, you know, trying not to humiliate him. But I said, well, I'm not sure that it's a good idea to get tattoos, but I'm certain of this. It's not an unpardonable sin. And despite any tattoo you might have, you, you can be saved. You can repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as God, Savior, and King and be forgiven. He said, you don't understand. This is no ordinary tattoo. And he rolled up his sleeve and he displayed this grotesque, uh, obviously occultic symbol. And he explained that his older brother had been involved in a Satan worshiping group and had coaxed him into becoming a part of it. And only a few weeks before, they had had a ceremony in which this young man pledged his soul to Satan. And his covenant with the devil was emblazoned permanently on his arm by that grotesque tattoo. And he said, I would love to give my heart to Jesus Christ, but it is not mine to give. I pledged my soul to the devil. I explained that Jesus is not just an angelic being like the devil is, but he is actually the creator God, deity incarnate, God in human flesh. And he has an authority that trumps Satan's claim over anyone. I went on to explain that Jesus was raised from the dead and he was ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And Ephesians chapter 2 says that that is a position in which he holds all principalities and powers under his feet. And those principalities and powers include the prince of the power of the air. Yes, even Satan himself. Jesus is all supreme. And Andy got down on his knees and tearfully confessed faith in Jesus as his God, Savior, and King. And yet another magi fell on his knees before the Lord Jesus and showed the depths of God's grace.
I love the fact that God summoned like men like this to the birth of his son. Because what that tells me is that God's grace and mercy defy description. What that tells me is that there is no person who is so wicked that they cannot be saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And the reason that's so moving to me is because it gives me the assurance that God can love and forgive even a person like Chuck Quarles. The summons of the Magi to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and experience his mercy and grace are powerful displays of what we sang about this morning in one of our hymns. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. It's a powerful reminder of God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. It's a powerful reminder of the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's Mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. The only reason that any of us in this room this morning have hope for eternity is because of that kind of grace. The grace that extends to the very epitome of evil, the very worst of the wicked, and forgives and redeems and transforms for the glory of his name. We see in the visit of the Magi that Jesus came to be the Savior of all the peoples of the earth. We see that the Lord Jesus can forgive and transform even the very worst of sinners, like these pagan sorcerer magicians from the East. Finally, we see from the visit of the Magi that the Lord Jesus is worthy of all worship and all sacrifice. Notice that when the Magi see the infant Christ, they recognize him as the one whom they sought. And, and who is the one that they were seeking? Uh, they said at the beginning of chapter 2, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? Uh, that doesn't express it quite as apty, aptly as I would like to see. The construction that's used here doesn't refer to Jesus as the king of the Jews who has been born. It refers to him as the born king. Do you see the difference? 
The construction means that Jesus is king by birthright. And we know the reason for that, right? Because we've just studied Matthew 1.1, where Jesus is described as the promised descendant of King David. We're familiar with the genealogy that emphasizes Jesus' Davidic lineage. Why? Because that fulfills the Old Testament promise that we call the Davidic covenant, where one of David's descendants will reign from David's throne over God's people forever and ever and ever. And when the Magi say that Jesus is the born king, they're confirming what the genealogy of Matthew has already attested to, that Jesus has the lineage that qualifies him to fulfill the Old Testament promise. That's why Herod the Great is so troubled and all Jerusalem with him, because when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. They are scared to death when Herod gets upset. Herod wasn't king by birthright. He wasn't a descendant of David. In fact, he wasn't even a full-blooded Jew. He was an Edomite and not qualified to sit on Israel's throne. He's very threatened by even this baby who has the qualifications that he lacks. But here's the point. The first aspect of the Magi's confession is Jesus' identity as king. That's a confession that every one of us must make as well. We must bow before Jesus, recognizing him as the supreme authority over our lives. We must recognize that he is king and we are his humble subjects. And we must yield to him control over every aspect of our existence. But not only did the Magi proclaim Jesus as king, they worshiped him as God. The scripture says, when they came to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshiped him. Now, there are plenty of interpreters who would argue that the word worship here merely means to bow down. It obviously doesn't, because that would make the construction completely redundant, wouldn't it? If worship just means bow down, what Matthew is saying is they bow down and they bow down. No. What Matthew is telling us is that they bow down with special significance. They recognized Jesus' deity, and they were worshiping him as almighty God. There are many times in the gospel of Matthew that the Lord Jesus is going to receive worship from sinners. And every one of those instances is to be interpreted against the background of the statement that Jesus will make in the wilderness temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Satan tempts Christ to bow down and worship him, and he'll give him all the kingdoms of the earth. And the Lord Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
And in light of Jesus' insistence that only the Lord God is worthy of worship, the fact that he receives worship again and again and again of the Gospel of Matthew attests to the fact that Matthew recognizes that he is God worthy of worship. He is the Manuel of Matthew chapter 1, and it demonstrates that the Lord Jesus recognized his deity and the fact that he was worthy of worship as well. The early church fathers insisted that not only do they confess faith in the deity of Jesus Christ by their act of worshiping the Lord Jesus, but the Magi also expressed this conviction through one of the gifts that was presented to Christ. Early church fathers said every one of these gifts has a very important significance. Gold is a gift that was often given by subjects at the birth of a king. But incense was the kind of gift that one ordinarily gave to deity. You might remember that one of the sacrifices in the Hebrew Scriptures was the incense offering. And the ancient Jews were not the only ones who offered incense as an act of worship to those that they recognized as God, even many pagans did so in their rituals as well. The point is, when they offer to Jesus incense, frankincense, they're offering to him a gift that is appropriate as an act of worship of God himself. They recognize that Jesus is the Emmanuel of Matthew chapter 1, that he is God with us, deity incarnate, God in human flesh, the Almighty. Not only do they proclaim him as king and worship him as God, they trust him as Savior. The final gift that they present to the Lord Jesus is myrrh. And the primary use of myrrh in the ancient world was as a burial spice, a spice that was used to prepare bodies for burial to mask the odors of decay. Remember, the Jews did not embalm their dead like the Egyptians did. They simply washed the corpse, wrapped it in cloth, and and perfumed it before they laid it in the tomb. And John 19, 39 tells us that this is exactly how the body of the Lord Jesus was treated after his crucifixion. Nicodemus covered his body in the tomb with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. The only time in the Gospel of Matthew that myrrh will be mentioned again is in the description of Jesus' anointing with myrrh by the woman of Bethany. And do you remember how Jesus responded to her act? He said, when the disciples protested at the waste of this valuable ointment, quote, she has anointed my body for burial. Why in the world? Would a burial spice be presented 
to a newborn as a gift, no less. Uh, Some scholars have compared this to taking embalming fluid to a baby shower or something like that. What does it do? It would have this ominous sense that this baby was born to die. It appears that the Magi, some way, somehow, how God revealed these things, I do not know to them, but some way, somehow, they knew that this child who had been born in Bethlehem had not only been born to reign as king, he had been born to die on a cross, to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins, to suffer as our substitute, to endure the wrath of the heavenly judge that we deserve in our place so that we can escape it. And notice that these acts of worship performed by the Magi are likewise acts of great sacrifice. Gold, incense, and myrrh were precious commodities in the ancient world, very, very valuable. And now that you know that the Magi from the East are not three kings from Orient are, You know that these were not wealthy men who are giving a a pittance to the Lord Jesus. No, these are ordinary men, and these gifts that they present to the Lord Jesus are likely their life savings, the things that were most precious and valuable to them. That's why Matthew says they opened their treasures. These things were precious and valuable and important to them. It's what it had taken them a lifetime to accumulate. Matthew uses the word treasure here very intentionally because he is anticipating what the Lord Jesus will teach in the Sermon on the Mount where Christ says, hey, uh, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves and Break through and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he added, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Matthew wants us to understand from the vantage point of the Sermon on the Mount that when these magi gave their treasures to the Lord Jesus, they were giving their hearts to the Lord Jesus as well. These treasures were expressions of their wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ as their God, their Savior, and their King. Now, I don't think that the shepherds joined the Magi in worshiping the infant Christ together, but I know this much. We need to. We need to kneel beside these converted, repentant, believing, transformed, former astrologer, sorcerer, magicians, and worship Jesus as our God, Savior, and King and express that worship even through acts of great 
sacrifice, giving him our very treasures to show that our hearts are his as well. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? Do you ever think that you are beyond the scope of God's grace and mercy because of your background, your culture, your ethnicity, your language? The visit of the Magi and the revelation from the star of Bethlehem show that Jesus came to save all the peoples of the earth. Have you ever feared that your sins against a holy God are so bad and grievous that forgiveness is not even a possibility for you? How many times in my life I've held out the promises of the gospel only to hear a person say, you don't understand, I can never be forgiven. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. The visit of the Magi shows us it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Forgiveness of sin and a transformed life are gifts that can be yours right now if you will simply worship the Lord Jesus for all that the Magi worshiped him for. As king, yield your life to his authority and control. As savior, trust his death on the cross for your salvation, not some good thing you do. Not your efforts at church attendance and commandment keeping. Trust Christ alone. And worship him as almighty God. Recognize that he is more than just a great philosopher or religious teacher. He is the Emmanuel God with us. Because the only faith that saves is the kind of faith that the Magi exhibited, faith in Jesus as God, as Savior, and as King. If that's your commitment this morning, in just a few minutes when we sing together, I'm going to invite you to come forward and speak to one of our church leaders or to approach me. We'll answer any questions you might have so that you can leave this place today with the assurance that you're a child of God your sins are forgiven, and God will transform your life. Father, we commit this invitation to you. We pray that the gospel has been clear because we believe that your gospel is your power unto salvation to everyone who believes. Please display that power now by moving men and women and boys and girls to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory and their eternal good. In Jesus' name, amen.